Welcome, everybody, and let us give thanks to God. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be to the ages of ages. Father, we are your children, delighting in you, in Christ Jesus, in the Holy Spirit. We thank you that this space in which we now all sit is that space in your spirit. And we ask now for the overshadowing, for the opening of our eyes, for the filling of our hearts in a fresh and new way with your love, that this morning into us there shall be poured the life and the light and the nourishment by your Holy Spirit. We ask, take us by the hand and lead us into the depths of what you're saying to us this day. That this day shall be the beginning of days for many. That this day shall be the day of healing and wholeness to the totality of our being. We rest in your blessing and delight in you, giving you thanks. In the name, Lord Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Welcome to everybody here and there, and we're coming to speak in a moment, and if any of you were in Houston at the memorial service of Darren Begley, I spoke this message, but I gave only 10 minutes and um, was severely limited, and um, the 10 minutes were, of course, directed to Darren Begley's memorial. But as I was giving it, I knew that it had a vast application far beyond that memorial service. And so I'm going to speak on it today. But if you hear the text and say, we've heard this, you haven't heard anything. So um, let's come to the Word of God. You can turn to Psalm and number 30. Psalm number 30. It's one of the lesser-known psalms of David, but I just want to turn our attention to um, verse 10. He says, Hear, O Lord, and you'll notice that's in capital letters, and so that means I am. Hear, O I am, be gracious to me. O I am, be thou my helper. Thou... I am, has turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to thee and not be silent. Oh, I am my God. I will give thanks to thee forever. It's David's testimony. If we had a lot of time, we could go into the whole psalm and David had been going through a very dark period of his life in which things essentially just fell apart. And now he has been delivered, and he interprets that deliverance in the words of verse 11. You've turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth. Now, we associate mourning with with death, specifically with the death of a loved one. 
And um, as I said, I have given this message greatly reduced at, at such a time. But in actual fact, David was not mourning the death of a loved one. He was mourning in a much greater, well, not greater, I don't think there's anything greater than mourning a loved one, but in a more um, invasive way. He, he is looking at many points in life that actually produce mourning and loss. And that is the heart of this text. It is that whenever I come up against that brick wall and my life just seems to fall apart, when everything that I'd planned and hoped for and expected uh, is suddenly, usually the word suddenly has to be in there, it's gone. And, and I stand bewildered um, and, and loss hits me. And with that loss, there is always attached this word mourning and a time of mourning. And I want us to look at these words because they're terribly important. Uh, a, a loss when we say I've had a loss, it means a time of deep sorrow and grief. And that could be applied um, to a relationship, that a relationship between friends, a relationship between um, a group of persons, and it suddenly is shattered and it comes to an end. And there's that great emptiness within. There's been a loss in that. We, we can lose a career um, overnight. You can lose your career and wonder where the future's going, what is happening. Um, it's the death of a dream that we'd had and held to, and then it's suddenly gone. Uh, a failed business. There, there's um, a lot of people in that kind of mourning today, because of the pandemic, they lost their job. And restaurants have lost their total business and we can just walk by and say what a shame they're closed um and see they've gone bankrupt and it's out of our mind it's gone it's just well sad but for those people they have plunged into a state of mourning do you understand this this word is bigger than um what happens at the death of a loved one it is the loss of anything that had roots inside of me that defined my life. And suddenly, or unexpectedly, and certainly with no plans attached to it, it's gone. And we, we look at this word loss. Um, recently in California, there's many people just lost their home. And, and they had it last week, and now it's a rubble. And again, we read it in the news, oh, what a shame. But for that person, they have gone into deep mourning. That would be the word to use here. A deep sense of loss, which is attached to grief and sorrow. Um, just re, I mean, what? Last week, week before, down in Louisiana, uh, lost your home underwater, floods. We could keep going. You get the drift of this. This is, this is what this word means. And it is what it is, this is what it's talking about. And we include the extreme mourning into that, of course. But we've got to remember our life, hear me carefully, our life, every one of us here, is littered with little gravestones. 
It's littered with moments of mourning, littered with wise, how did it happen? And that's what he's talking about. It's the day when you look and look with glazed eyes sometimes and you say, if only, but it's too late. It's already a fact. Then we go back and say, what if I had, but it's too late. The path was taken, the results are. And of course, there's always the why, which is the worst word, actually. Um, never never ask God why. There's no answer to it. Uh, and it only spirals you down at least two more stories. But um, but it's there. I mean, I'm trying to define the moment. This is, It's the why. Why? The, the way life could have been if, the way life should have been if, but it's not. And, and you, you've got to feel the great emphasis of that. It now is not. Not. And all my expectations are dashed there, gone with the moments of time. Um, it, it's as if a tornado has passed through our heart, tearing it to shreds. And all hope, expectancy, dreams of the future they are gone and that that's the way it is that's what we're talking about here and then um it's of course the hebrew culture um we never forget it that uh, the especially the psalms express the hebrew culture and every culture has its own way of mourning and uh the hebrews they were experts at it. Um, they they would throw dust all over themselves, um, and um, then they would put the ashes of the fire into their head. I mean, when it was ashes, not when it was embers, but they, they would put the ashes in their hair. And so when you saw someone, they, they would look a mess. I mean, they would almost look slightly in dementia, that ashes in their hair, dust all over them that they would wear sackcloth, clothes made of sackcloth next to their skin, which made it for great irritation. But that was meant to be so that I feel, they wanted physically to feel their, their grief. And sometimes they would go without shoes. Uh, right at the heart of it was the terrible wail. I've never heard it in the States, but in Africa they do the wail and in the Middle East and it's something you never want to hear again. It is this scream of anguish, the cry of a person in mourning. And when he says, you've turned my mourning, that, that's what he's talking about. Because in such times of crisis, not necessarily at a funeral, and at the time of crisis, these Hebrews would wear their sackcloth and put ashes in their hair to say, I'm going through this state of mourning, and I want everybody to know it, and I want everybody to respect it. I'm, I'm a person now who has come to a point of death in my life. Um, we in the West don't do anything like that. We're very private, um, but we can't help it. We wear it on our face, and, and we wear sackcloth on our face, and the, our very tone of voice takes on our own Western wail. It's that negative, it's that cry that penetrates everything we say. 
It's the way it is. Um, it all comes back to um, these words. I've mentioned them already, grief and sorrow. They're big words in the Bible, big words. They're placed right alongside sin. You know, Jesus bore our sin, but he also bore our grief and carried our sorrow. Uh, what is grief and sorrow? It's got nothing to do with sin, by the way. Um, and people always think of Jesus' sufferings as just about sin. <clears throat> he was doing more there than that. These are the results of living in a fallen world. The grief and the sorrow. The word grief, these are both very big words. Um, the word grief in the Hebrew language means sick at heart. It can also mean physically sick. It's, it's the root of all anxiety. It means when I'm, I'm fainting inside and I just, I've, I've lost all ability to move. It's a sort of inner paralysis. Um, and interestingly, the word is used to describe wounding by others. It's not only that something has wounded me, but it, 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 it was used when in a battle when you're caught in the crossfire and, and you're wounded because somebody else did something. I think that fits amazingly well, that we are certainly wounded by others who go on their own sweet way. Um, so it's the beating that you take in a, a, a very um, battle situation. Um, it's, it describes an injury for your own fall. You, you, you did the tripping, you did the foolish step, and you fell. Well, uh, they, they use this word for that. But also it includes sickness of mind. And so it, the anguish, the wail, is in the mind. It, it is my mind is, is in such despair. There's a darkness, there's a cloud upon my mind, mental anguish. Um, so it means you're emotionally wiped out. You're tired. And, and I guess another word from today would be burned out. Uh, you're just an ember of what you used to be. That's all inside the word grief in the Hebrew language. It's a very strong word. But sorrow zeroes in on the mental side and speaks of deep pain mentally, that you, you can't think because of the pain. You can't feel because of the pain. You've lost the ability to connect with other humans. And so it's um, a darkness, a hopelessness of mind, a despair, that um, it's often they try to treat it with drugs, but essentially you can't treat it with drugs. There's got to be something much deeper than that. This this is mourning of the heart. Okay, I, I want to try and explain this grief and sorrow. And you might never have been here before, so listen carefully. I mean, what is grief? It's a positioning in time. Do you, do you realize in our time, as time came out of the Garden of Eden, that is, after the fall of man, time, as we understand it, though very few have thought about it, is a river that flows backwards. Everything about time is behind you. The river flows backwards. And in going backwards, uh, put it this way, Something happens. 
It doesn't really matter what it is. I mean, something how I sat in this chair. You saw me do it five minutes ago. Do you realize I can never do that again? Not exactly like that. It was a happening, but the minute I did it, it was frozen in time. Rigor mortis set in. I couldn't do it again. It stuck. And if you're going to isolate that moment, there I am in the position of sitting in a chair and forever upon evers, that's it. It can never be reversed. It can, no, it's, it's part, and it's getting further and further away. I said five minutes. No, it's seven now. I mean, it's, it, it's a river that's flowing away and events that are now rigor mortis are now flowing away from us. And if it's a certain kind of event, if it was this building, um, well, in a thousand years' time, you'll see nothing but crumbling bricks. As it leaves, it has a corrupting influence. It begins to fall apart, and we call it loss of memory. I can't remember. The thing is now beginning to not be, but you know it is. It was. But but um, everybody in it... Uh, you saw me sit down well in that memory in that event in time you're all sitting there just exactly as you were can never be repeated you'll never be looking like that ever again it's you get it okay well put it like this um we measure the clock we we said a few minutes ago it's 11 o'clock what do we mean by that we mean that 11 hours of the day have already slipped away um, our telling the time is the announcement of what no longer is. And we're, we're moving. And even as we say the word 11 o'clock, it's become 11.01 and we've lost another minute. It's gone down the river, locked and never to be repeated. Um, in a few days, people will say that I am 82. They're absolutely wrong. I'm not 82. It meant, when I say 82, it means that 82 years of my life have slipped behind me. And actually, on the day of my 82 is the beginning of 83. Uh, we, we, 82 is not the beginning of 82. It's the announcement I've had 82 that can never be repeated. Well, you're getting it. There's a lot of nods here. <laughs> Especially when I got to birthdays. You know? um, a- a- anniversary is the same thing. 50th anniversary just means there's been 50 years that can never be repeated. They're gone. A- and I don't think we think about it because it, it begins to get a little negative, you know. Um, it's gone. It can never be repeated. I can't do it again. I can't apply for a second chance. It's that's time. That's tick tock, tick tock, as we understand it. And the tick tock is as the river goes further and further away, falls behind us. And um, well, I said in a thousand years' time, this building would have crumbled as it went further and further away from this minute. But when it comes to what I'm talking about here. If I get locked in to that event that is moving and moving away, I begin to fester and corrupt along with it. And I'm stuck back there. As life is moving here, I'm stuck back there. And this corruption, a root of bitterness many times, is, is and 
And here I am. And grief and sorrow now have become the way I'm defined. This has become my life. This is the way it is. Um, and, and I mean, I've heard it, and I don't want to be cruel to people, but we've got to face it. We've said these words, many of us, that, well, th- th- this is it. Life begins and ends here. This is it. And you might be only 30 years old, but really you'll never again go anywhere except you're locked into this that happened, and that becomes who I am. Life that I once knew, life that I once hoped for and dreamed of, now is not. And if I'm stuck there with the event, it never will be. I I have become one with that rigor mortis of that which has passed. You could say we move on up to a point because we're chained to that that happened and we can't move from it. We're like a dog on a chain and we go to the extreme and then there's a tug that says, no, come on, this is where we live, back here. If that hadn't have happened, if if she hadn't have said that, then it would be, but she did. And it doesn't matter. As a pastor, I've seen it 40 years ago and they've still never forgotten that. They're chained. Don't move from that. Um, We remember, well, really, um, I've got to bring it out because it's such a good word, but it's a bit bigger than what I say. The Hebrew word remember is not the English word remember. We, We go back with our minds to try and recreate something, but the Hebrew meaning of the word remember is to take something from the past and bring it into the future, into the present, and to... It becomes my present now reality, releasing into my life now all of its energies from the past. And that's how it used in the Bible to remember the Holy Communion. Do this in remembrance of me. It doesn't mean to think about his sufferings. It means to bring the living Christ into this moment. And so we tend, I say the we of the people I'm talking about here, we remember we remember like a Hebrew, and we try to bring that grief into this present moment and cause this present moment to be completely under the authority of that grief. The Hebrew word forget doesn't mean amnesia. It it means to leave something back where it belongs, that it shall not influence this present moment. We should forget many things that we're remembering. And we should remember many things that we're forgetting. (laughs) Yeah. Because there's a certain insanity about it that I I believe that if I ever did forget the grief in the sense that it was real, I've shed my tears, but I leave it now and I move on, there's a voice inside that I'm being unfaithful. I'm being unfaithful to myself. I, I should. You, you, you just can't forget that. You just can't walk away. You can't move on. Not after that. What kind of a man are you? Stupid little voice inside. Maybe you've never had it. But there's the feeling you're being unfaithful to others. You're being unfaithful to yourself. If ever you did the unspeakable of moving on. Can't do that. No, it's all part of this. We pitch our tent right beside that frozen-in-place event. 
We define our life by the grief that was attached to it and by the sorrow. And we begin to assume the shape of the sorrow, begin to feel the very embrace of the grief, you know. It's a declaration that my life is now dust and ashes, which interestingly, what is the ashes except the burned out remains of what was? And I think that's how why they put it in their hair, that uh, that it shows uh, my my life up to this moment is burned out. And, And we do it, of course, in our Western way. We do it in our head with our thoughts, imaginations. We don't do it physically, but it's there, burned out. Finished. Life ended there. Never, never. It can't be the same. It can never be the same. Ever heard the word? I can never trust again. Yeah, never trust. I've heard also. I can never love again. You know why? Because you're pitching your tent beside something that happened, and saying this now defines my life. I, I've locked in to something that's increasingly day. Every day I've gone twenty-four more hours down the river, further away from reality. That the the event dominates and rules life, and of course, as I said, prayer, there, there's always that anger toward God, and you shouldn't look so spiritual about it. We, we've we've all we know anger at God. That's why we say why, because what we're doing is we're making we're issuing God a subpoena. He he's got to come into our courtroom and give an account of why on earth he let this happen. And we're upset with him for doing that. It's okay. Do you realize his love for you is bigger than your anger? It's okay. You can punch him if you like. He takes your wounds. And by the wounds you gave him, we're healed. Isn't that amazing? Um, but it's there. We, and so if we don't resolve this, our life now can never have intimacy with God because I keep going back. Why did he do that? I remember... The church I was pastoring, and a woman, uh, now she was an old lady, about as old as me, <laughs> and um, she looked back, and it was when she was a, a young grandmother, put her maybe in her late 40s or whatever, and, and her granddaughter had been killed, and that was it. That was her life, and now she's in her 80s. And all she could talk about was what kind of a God is it let, let that happen? What, what kind of a life, you know? And, and there was nothing you could do to her that way back there. That was the only reality. That, that's loss, you see. That, that is this kind of loss. This is this morning. And, of course, religion uh, has established this as a way of life. Understand religion has its roots in this death time of of the fall. You think about it. Religion has a mindset that is rooted in the past that rides on the river of a backwards time. Was that a sentence too big to hear? (laughs) Yeah. Religion has a mindset and, and it... It's a mindset of the past. Religion always is in the past. And so it rides, <clears throat> all religion <clears throat> rides on the river of backwards time. 
Um, what, it's, I mean, the oxygen of religion is guilt. Well, what's guilt except back there I did something and I have to keep going back there and defining myself by it. Um, shame, what is shame? Well, back there I did something and I, I still, I mean, I'm still hiding because um, <clears throat> religion told me that's the way it is. It's always back there. And, and you return there. And every day, if you're very religious, you'll confess your sins. Thinking that if I can talk to God about back there, it will be resolved. Well, it isn't resolved. You're just hammering in your tent pegs one more day and you're strengthening your place back there in time. Um, that's all, all religion. We've been taught that. Religion welcomes the corruption of staying there because then you'll answer the appeal every Wednesday and Sunday because you feel so rotten and shameful about yourself because it's all you're living back there. You're not living now. Um, see, <laughs> yeah. Religion says, as I was, so I am. Um, you know, there's a bumper sticker. I, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Oh, boy. Which book did you get that out of? It wasn't the Bible. No, that's religion, see. I'm just, I'm, I did it, you see. I did it, I did it, I did it. And he forgave me, but, you know, I still did it. Still, I'm still pitched there. No, of course, the scripture says, as he is, so am I. Big difference. And so religion always links forgiveness to the past and remembers what have you done? Dredge it up. Think it through all the wretchedness I've done. That, that's religion. Whereas the gospel doesn't ever go back there. The gospel goes forward to the resurrection and says, because of the resurrection, whatever I did back there is wiped out, made as if it never was. I'm blameless, innocent in the sight of God. And Christ is my life, healing, wholeness, newness. By his bruise, I was healed. Not merely have religious sympathy. You see, he says, thou, thou hast turned my mourning. So suddenly, out of this wretchedness, there comes a new, something's invaded it. Thou, you could almost see a but looming there. But, thou, and who's thou? We saw that in verse 10. Oh, Lord, oh, I am, as he revealed himself to Moses. I am. And the I am of graciousness is going to do something that you didn't earn or pay for. I am, you be my helper, you turn. It's the the invasion, you don't use that. I, I use the other word I like, entangled. God has entangled himself with us in the mess that I've just described, in my overwhelming mourning and in that which attaches me to the event. He entangles himself and makes it his own. You see, this thou is not a distant, a remote, 
disinterested deity. And, I mean, speaking very honestly, that is where many Christians who meet within a thousand miles of here, their God is up somewhere. He's remote. He's got no entanglement with tomorrow morning. All we do is sing stuff that belongs to today. And preachers say stuff that are quite meaningless by Tuesday. He, he's up. He's, it's more a hobby. But this God has entangled himself in mourning. He has, you see, this is the meaning of the incarnation, which so many miss. The incarnation is not anything to do with a baby in a manger. Well, it is, but that's not the heart. The meaning of incarnation is God became human. God became human without ever ceasing to be God. And so human that he entered into grief. He entered into sorrow. All through his life, he lived a normal life life with all of its ups and downs and twists and turns until ultimately he took our grief became our sorrow and bore it away and I don't know um, what that does to you but huh, to think of God actually knowing by God experience what it is to cry that blows my mind that God entered into the minutiae of being human and in the history of God is what it's like to own a business in Nazareth and face the oppression of a Roman Empire with its taxes and so on and so on. He's entered into our life. He doesn't overhear it. He knows it by experience. But thou, God, is here and now in the middle of my tears because he organically joined himself to us in the incarnation. But then he says, thou, this one who's, what, what does he do? He's entangled himself with us. What does he do? He turns for me my morning into dancing. Now, I don't want to overemphasize a word. The word turn, you know, in, in its simple well, what does turn mean? If you turn, it means there's you're on a reverse course. You were going this way, you turned. And whether you turn there or turn there or turn here, turn means a change of course. And usually some sort of reverse of the course. You're, you're going in a totally other direction. Well, throughout the Bible, that word is used just like that. You turn left, and they use that word. Um, but sometimes this word is lifted out of a usual normal usage, and it becomes the word to describe extraordinary miracles. And so, um, do you remember Moses? Went be uh, the time when he he met God as I am. Uh, and, and the Lord said, throw down your stick. Moses said, how shall I know you're with me? And blah, blah, blah. So he says, throw down your stick. And he took his shepherd's crook stuff, 
threw it down. And using this word, it says the stick turned into a serpent. Now that's a little bit more than turning left. Yeah. <laughs> he turned the stick into a serpent. And it was just like that. There's a stick, there's a serpent. And the Lord says, now pick it up by the tail. He picked it up and it turned back into a stick. Or what about when he went into Egypt and the river Nile, yeah, turned into blood. It is a word that is used many times to describe the plagues of Egypt, especially if you go to the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 66 or Psalm 114, when they're reiterating the history of Israel. And they say that um, the Red Sea was turned into dry ground. It's that same, same word, turned. Something reversed. The natural order is gone. You're, you're, you're now going backwards. Uh, it says the River Jordan, when Joshua was going to, and it says the River Jordan turned and they could walk across on dry land. Oh, going back to the plagues, it says, um, what is it? The, the Lord turned the wind. It was blowing this way. He turned it to blow that way. And, and that way blew a whole bunch of locusts into Egypt. But, but it says specifically the miracle was not so much the locusts. It was that he turned the wind. It was blown one way. He turned it around and that blew the locusts in. But he used the word turn. Another one I like, um, Balaam cursed, or at least was planning on cursing Israel. Do you remember that chap, Balaam? And um, it says that the Lord turned the curse into a blessing. I could keep going. Jesus turned water into wine, you know. So thou hast turned my morning into dancing. It's um, it's a miraculous word. It's it's a word that contains the power of God acting on our behalf, and every story, both Old and New Testament, of the miraculous, points to the presence of God in the middle of our situation bringing out his love action. That's every miracle. But the, all miracles in the Bible are summed up in the resurrection. For in the resurrection, you have something beyond miracle. If you want to say is a miracle of miracle, is a wonder, a miracle wonder. Okay, the res have you thought about this? The resurrection was a greater act of power than creation. Have you ever thought about that? Creation, if you could ever speak like it, was nothing compared with resurrection. Because creation was the word of God calling forth all that is out of nothing. Right? So out of nothing, God said, let it be, and it was. That's, that's good. That's, that's power. But the resurrection was the calling forth of life out of unlife. Jesus had entered into death, and now 
It's not calling forth out of nothing. It's calling forth out of no thing, out of non-life. He's got to reverse death. He's got to defeat death and cause death not to be. That's resurrection. And therefore I say all miracles are summed up in that one act. We've never seen or heard anything like the resurrection. Creation took six days, this took three. And um, that's the new creation. I said it was the turning point. It was the reversal of death. See, don't, don't confuse the resurrection with, say, Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or even those who in the Old Testament. They weren't resurrections. You can never use the word resurrection for that. They were resuscitations. They were dead and they came back to life, but they died again. Resurrection is a unique word. It's only happened once in all of history. When not only did Jesus come back from the dead, shall I say, in, in his resurrection, death died. And death was rolled up as if it had never been. Which means that he actually reversed time. Because that river of time goes back. Why? Because once it's done, it's dead. It's rigor mortis. It could never be again. And Jesus stepped into that stream of death and not only overcame it, but reversed it. And he came... Okay, put it this way. He goes into death. Think about this. Jesus goes into death... And because he's taking us with him, and he's organically one with us, therefore, when he does it, I don't know another way of saying it, it's the real thing. Why did Jesus stay in the tomb for three days? It didn't take him three days to overcome death. He could have died and immediately risen. But no, he is joining us in our grief. He's joining us in our mourning that he died and they took his dead body and laid it in the tomb and they saw the stone roll over it, which today would be equivalent to the earth being put on the coffin. And, and he's dead. And they go home and they've entered into the backward stream of life. Tick tock, tick tock. It's been 12 hours since we did that. It's been 24 hours. Tick tock, tick tock. He's going, he's going. He really died and let us enter into that by actually grieving a death. A death that had a stone. Huh. Can, can you get can you, the resurrection? That he came out of that three days to let us know this is real. And he came out. And when he came out, he had a body that could be touched and handled and a body in which he sat down and said, please give me something to eat. And he ate in front of them to prove I'm not a ghost. I'm not an ephemeral thought in your imagination. Give me something to eat. You can look at the crumbs when I'm gone and know I, I sat here and ate it. He overcame death. 
We say that too quickly. <laughs> he overcame death by reversing time. Because now what do we do? Because what was dead, what was rigor mortis, is now sitting at the table. It's being reversed. We don't go back there. He comes back here. If you're confused, it's okay. We're talking about the reversal of creation time. I can't say that in five minutes. I, my, my head won't go around it, but this is the resurrection, and you've never realized the resurrection till you know it. He's canceled that and instead moved it the other direction, and he comes out of the tomb. When you put somebody in the tomb, there's no way out. He reversed it and came out, which means the control of death is dead. Death is no longer an issue, as we've always known this. And he's, he's raised us from a death at all levels of death to newness of life. The life that we call eternal life which I wish we wouldn't because everybody thinks that means living forever. Eternal life is in this throbbing minute right now. What do we mean by it? We mean that it's a life that has destroyed death's hopelessness at any level, wherever you find the fingerprints of death. It's hopelessness, it's despair, it's paralysis. It's gone. He, he reversed it. And, and instead, we, we look at a loss as a loss, oh yeah, but through eyes of hope. And we can turn away from the loss and, and we can see life is beckoning us into a tomorrow that is beyond anything we'd ever dreamed of. So that we're not camped at the loss now we've opened up to a possibility of a life that already has overcome death in every way. Um, you see how can I say this? His resurrection did not restore everything that was past. That was, that was the whole thing with Mary. I don't know if you've ever thought of it. Um, you know, Mary was looking in the tomb and she was weeping and and she was aware of somebody behind her. It's a neatest story. Um, and aware she thinks it's the gardener. And, you know, Jesus said, woman, why are you weeping? That's another message. <laughs> Tears in a graveyard are perfectly in order, but Jesus came as a new kind of graveyard. Why are you weeping? And... But this is the whole point. She, she suddenly realizes it's Jesus. Now, if you're reading from a very old translation, it says that Jesus says, touch me not. But that's a, no, no, forget that. The word is, do not cling to me. So apparently, when Mary realized it was Jesus, she flung her arms in the sense of clinging as as if I'm never going to let you go. 
And if I could put words into the situation, she is saying, you're, you're back, therefore it's all back. I can almost hear the excitement. We'll go back to Capernaum and that you'll be healing people on the streets again and, and you'll be teaching on the hills and you'll turn water into wine again and you're back, you're back and we're never going to let you go again. She's clinging to him. And Jesus gently pushes her away and he says, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. Because I am now about to ascend to my father and your father, which I'm sure meant very little to Mary at that time. But what was he saying? He was saying, Mary, don't cling to me because the me you're clinging to is not anymore. Don't, don't cling to me. We'll never go back to the Galilee. There'll never again be the healings in the streets and I'll never again feed 5,000. No, don't, don't cling. We're, we're not going. I'm not restoring the Gospels. In fact, I'm going to disappear, actually. I'm going to my Father. What does that mean? It means when I go to the Father, then the Holy Spirit will be given, and yeah, you, Mary, will be doing that on the streets of Capernaum. It will blow your mind. It will never go back there as it was. But the future is a fulfillment of every dream and hope that you thought was dead. But now in resurrection, it has become more than you can ever dream. I can't even explain it to you right now. Does that make sense? You'll never get it back, but in another sense, you'll get back what it was all about as you've never dreamed possible before. So he turns our mourning into dancing. Our mourning, he doesn't turn the event around that caused the mourning. It, it happened and that's it. But it, the mourning, that sense of grief and hopelessness and finishedness and burned outness and ashes, oh, he turns that into dancing in fact this is the meaning of repentance you know that other word we should never use repentance the, the, the Greek word metanoia which means this radical exchange of mind so that now I'm not thinking with my natural mind I'm thinking through his mind with his eyes instead of mourning I'm seeing now the hope that's in him. I've turned from looking at that event and saying, that finished it. I've turned and I'm seeing this one who's reversed everything. And I'm joining with his hope, his expectancy. I'm seeing with his eyes and that changes everything. It's an unearthly hope. Doesn't make sense. We're actually participating in his hope, his life, his feelings. <clears throat> now, it becomes something utterly new. So let me say it again. It's not saying, okay, let, let's have a second chance at this. No, no. But all the hopes and dreams that were there, that no, he's going to redeem it and... Look, Naaman, you remember Naaman in the Old Testament comes with leprosy and he takes that seven dips in Jordan 
Do you remember what it says when he came out the seventh time? His skin has become like a little child. Oh, hold it. Hold it. I was only asking for healing. You've given me brand new skin, pristine skin that's never had a mark on it before. Interesting. If you get my drift. Or what about Joel when he said, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. Don't be daft. Have you ever seen when after the locusts have been? They just go and eat everything that is green. There's nothing left. And in that Joel case, it had been year after year. And God says, I'll restore it. Now, well, you, you can't, we can't go back and have those fields full of wheat again. No. But in the way of this resurrection, what you're going to get at the end of that will be bigger than all of those years that the locust ate. And you'll be so big, you'll forget about the locust. <laughs> it's the way it is. The morning covers everything. It's not merely the thing that we're now thinking about. I said when we began, our life is littered with little gravestones. Well, if you get the what we're talking about here, he, he turns all the morning. Have you ever done this? I guess I'd have to say with, with the Holy Spirit being your guide, it's not something you sit doing. So I think I'll do it on Saturday afternoon. But to go back over your life and realize that every twist, every turn, every dead end, every sense of failure and meaningless actually, actually was what brought you eventually to where you are. Isn't that crazy? I thought it was a negative, but really it was part of the dance. I was blind as a bat and as feelingless as a sloth. I mean, but it was so. There was a dance going on, and it went up those dead ends, and I thought it was such a negative. But now looking back, I realized that every step I took, it was on the broken road that led me to Jesus, you know. That's the way it is. Resurrection has reversed it. He's undone death, and therefore he undoes all the mourning that's attached to it. He turns it into dancing. That, that's almost immoral, you know. I'm, I'm very serious, very. You, you go to a, a mourning situation. You go into a place of sorrow and grief and say, let's have a dance. Uh, no, no, you wouldn't do that. That's, that, that's I say, it's, 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 it's immoral. You, you wouldn't do that to scrape like a thing on a glass and he's dance that's the last thing you think of that's cruel to say that yeah a lot of stuff jesus did sends your head spinning do you remember and we we skip over it but in the gospels at the end of his doing something it says um how many times they were astonished or they were amazed they're big words the word astonished was used in ancient Greek to describe the look on people's faces after an earthquake had happened. Uh, and 
Now they're looking at each other, you know, what hit us? Where do we go? What's happening? We've never, you know, it's that they use that word astonished. Astonished, the word actually means to stand outside of yourself, which means, well, we say it in English, don't we? I was beside myself. Um, it, it means for momentarily I've lost connection with my thoughts. I don't know how to think about this. Astonished, yeah. Suppose if I suggest a dance at a funeral party, you would all drop your knives and forks in wonder, astonishment. What kind of idiot is this? But you see, he is the dance. Can you understand that? He doesn't come and say, dance. No, he is the dance. And when we recognize our union with him, we feel he's dancing from the inside. He, he turns our morning into dancing. He doesn't tell us to dance. It's not an imposition of law. He doesn't say, this is what good Christians do. You just cheer up. No tears here. You've heard that from religious families to kids that have never gotten over it. Yeah, no, it's not that. No, 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 it's not that. Nor, nor is it sort of whistling a happy tune, put on a happy face. No, there's nothing phony about Jesus. He begins the dance inside of us. It's, it's not an imposition. And what is dancing? We could take a long time there, but... You know, it's not just doing the Texas jig. You know, dancing, as you see it in a universal, that all peoples contribute to. Dancing is an expression of extreme joy. It, it means a joy that demands physical expression. I can't keep it to myself. And so we dance. And I say universally, whether you're in tribes in Africa or on the mountains of the Philippines or here, it's it's the same. Expressions are different, but that's what dancing is. It's a, it's a heart joy that demands physical expression. It, it, it brings it into the body so that the body moves in a rhythm that we have no real control over. In that when we hear music, ah, we begin to tap the feet. We're, we're tapping it long before we realize we're doing it. Because it, it's that, we've got to come out. And the, the conducting of the orchestra of my body comes from within. And, and dancing. Dancing um, is, is harmony and it's utter freedom but with intention. You put your feet very deliberately in a certain way in order to keep in rhythm with the music. And, and also, above all, I think, uh, dancing is an expression of love. The, in tribal dancing, it's the unity and the love of the whole village. Um, but here in the States and, and Western Europe, it, it shows dancing in terms of a man and a woman expressing love and devotion and honor and respect. You get the point. Jesus comes and, and he within us is the very essence of the dance. Jesus is the rhythm of our life. Jesus is the source of our joy. And, and Jesus is the one that, that is with intention 
bringing us to the steps of love and joy and peace and long-suffering. It's nothing phony, it's nothing add-on, it comes from within. In fact, the essence of a dance, especially in the West, is that the dancers are mirror images of each other, if you know anything about dancing. Um, you know, the man takes a step forward, the lady takes a step back, but to the point where it looks like one step, he goes forward and and it's magnificent to watch the, the way in which what one does, the other does backwards. And so the, the one mirrors the other, and in fact, if it's a very <clears throat> fast dance, you begin to wonder how many people are dancing. Is it one or two? They're, they're so united. Sounds like Christ lives in me. You know, it's a dance. And um, then it says, and I'm going to quit here, but spend more time on it, but I've got to say this. He not only says you turn my morning to dancing, but you have loosed my sackcloth. Now, why doesn't he say he ripped it off? You follow me? I mean, you turn my morning to dancing. I would expect him to grab my sackcloth and say, get rid of that stuff. Instead, it just says he looses it. He unties the belt, maybe unbuttons the top. And it, what's he doing? Loosing the sackcloth. Dare I say it, that he knows our pain and he's not going to drag us out of this before our time. There is a time to weep. There is. And there is a time to feel grief. And if you don't, you're going to feel it later on in a nasty way. And our beautiful Jesus knows that. So he looses our sackcloth. He says, when you're ready... You can just slip out of this, you know. It's um, it's said Isaiah sixty one. He's the one who comforts all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. Older translations say beauty instead of ashes. The actual word there actually is flowers. That's the word that's used in the Hebrew. That put flowers in your hair instead of ashes. It's come to that's an exchange. I have the ashes where you've met the one that says I've got a garland of flowers here to put instead of the ashes. And then he says, um, the oil of gladness or joy instead of mourning, because part of the mourning I didn't mention was that they did not put the sweet oils on their body, which the Hebrews were very um, good at but not when you're mourning. There's no beautiful smell. And it says now he comes and he gives you the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness or fainting. He gives it to us. But, and I don't know a better way of saying it than he, he waits on us. He allows us a process. Uh, sometimes in our evangelical world, it is, you've got to make a decision tonight. And, you know, all the threats that go with it. Of, you'll be killed by a raving bull if you don't or something. But um, I don't find that in Scripture. It certainly wasn't in the early church. They waited. 
they called it in the early, early, early church catechism, where you become a learner, one who is moving out of the darkness into the light. And you're not ready yet, but we're loving you, we're surrounding you, we're teaching you, we're praying with you, but you're coming, you're coming. And, and it's, he, he looses us. I, I don't know if I'm coming through. I, it, it, I feel it so strongly. The, the gentleness of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, he comes, okay, back, back to Mary in the garden. As I say, he could have just said, it's me. She wasn't ready for that. So what does he say? Why are you weeping? And I, and I say, that's a kind of wacky question <laughs> to ask somebody who's standing outside a grave, you know. Um, yeah, but it prepared her. Why are you weeping? What does that do? It makes her start talking. And she says the reason why she's weeping, which is very strange, actually. She doesn't say necessarily for the person that, that died. She said because someone has stolen the body, which is sort of, to me, secondary to. But that's where she was at. And right at that moment, she was weeping in that, what can I say? Oh, no, could it go this far? I mean, we, we've been weeping his death. Now, someone's stolen the body? And so that was where she's at. I don't care whether that's sensible. It's neither here nor there. That's where she's at. That's where Jesus met her. And says, tell me, tell me, what things, what things? On the road to Emmaus, same thing. Only, and, and again, he's disguised. He disguised so that he, they don't know who it is any more than Mary knew who it was. And, and, you know, he joins them. And he says, boy, you guys look sad. What's the matter? And, and you know, the, it's so real, you know. Are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know? And again, he says, what things? Come on, te he's teasing me. Tell me. And then they spill it out. We had hoped. <laughs> we had hoped. Now everything's dashed to the ground. It's all it's finished. We're done. We're going home to God knows where. And he lets them talk. Come on, tell me what things. Then when they're absolutely exhausted, they've cried their last tear, they're dead on their feet. He says, okay, guys. You're kind of thick-headed, aren't you? <laughs> and he, the beginning of May goes through the whole to what things concerning himself. And they said, our hearts begin to burn within us. We're alive. We're melting. We're no longer paralyzed. We're... And you know the rest of the story. That's Jesus. He knows everything. But I have to say that he chooses in his enormity of love, he chooses not to know because he wills to hear it from us. It is important to the max in his mind that you tell him. And you tell him your feelings and you tell him what you're feeling now. It doesn't matter if it makes sense because he's not looking for sense. He wants to know where you're at right now. And that could be anger. 
And don't be afraid of being angry at God. Most of the Psalms begin with being angry with God. I've been so angry with God, I've shouted and been afraid the neighbors would hear. What are you doing? I feel like you've abandoned me. Okay, let it out. Because there'll come a point where you've got nothing left to let out. And then he will say, you're a bit thick-headed, aren't you? Let me explain. And life begins to be a dance. And you can slide out of your sackcloth because he's already loosened it. So it works. It's about time some of us <laughs> began to dance. If you go to some, well, I know in Greece, but there are other places too, where people mourn for a lifetime. It's very sad. You see people in their black clothes decades after the fact. It's part of the culture. But it's many times part of the culture of many, many Christians that we, we never quit. It happened so long ago, but we've never left it. We've never loosed our sackcloth. We've never let the dance rise within us. The truth is, all of us, here and there and everywhere, in this space in which we sit, we are sitting right now in two worlds. And you might as well get used to it. As believers, we live in two worlds simultaneously. I live in a world in backwards time. And when I say I'll be 82, I am announcing that my body is part of the backward time. And I have lived 82 years, and the events as they happen cannot be changed. I'm, that, that's my human life. But at the self-same minute as I'm saying that, I'm living on the opposite time which has only opens up to unknown future that is rooted in resurrection and rooted in the love of God and the creativity of God to bring about what I said back there could never again be. Only he's bringing it about at a level I'd never even thought of. You get it? Well, so we become those who look through. We, we, we do not look at because if you look at, all you'll see is the river going backwards. But if you look through it to the river going forwards, then you live a resurrection life. But that's about it. Um, so you see, we never disconnect from our physical world. As you get some, you know, there. Well, I don't know what they are. But they're, they're kind of so, we, we say they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly use. Uh, you know, that's one way of putting it. But I mean, they're living in a fantasy spirit world. They've forgotten that God organically joined us in our physical, material, backwards world. And we live there still. But we don't. We live this way. And we're something like Jesus now. 
Because Jesus said he's the one who ascended first and then he descended before he ascended. I said, where are you? Well, that is the point. He said, I only do the things I hear my father say. Well, where did you hear that? Because I don't hear it in this physical world. He lived in two worlds at once. Now he says, I am in you and you are in me. Well, this you, this me is in a physical world. Yet I am in him who is in the resurrection world that's got no boundaries to it. And so I learned to live in this strange place. And it is a strange place. Where, where you look through this world. You look through what's happening. You, you look through events that are about to make you put another gravestone up. And you look through and you begin to learn to live in accord with the river of new time the river of God time, the river of resurrection that goes forward and doesn't leave you back there in hopelessness. Well, that's about it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to land a plane. And so <laughs> we just, you know, we're, we're, I, I, I do helicopters. We just say, well, that's it. <laughs> so... Now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, his blessing be upon us. His blessing that opens the eyes of our understanding that we shall hear and see the dance who is within us. And we shall loose off our sackcloth and dance the dance of God in life. So I bless you. That is the way it is. Amen.